You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. A couple years back, I received an email. And immediately upon opening that email, my pulse started to race. I could feel my heart beat a little faster. Right there in front of me, inches from my eyes, was something so enticing, so alluring, that I couldn't help but get excited. The curves were perfect. The light hit at all the right angles. There was even a link that I could click to see countless more images just like this one. And so after a few seconds of staring, I moved my cursor and hovered over the link. And finally, I clicked it. At which point, I was redirected to a website for Tesla sports cars. The email was an advertisement for Tesla. Were you guys expecting something different? Today, we're going to spend some time talking about something that sometimes makes us hold our breath a little bit, that sometimes makes us a little squeamish. We're going to talk about sexual desire. And I bring up that Tesla story, one, to give us some time to release a breath, to laugh (laughs) briefly, uh, but also to illustrate, I think, something crucial about how our world tends to understand sexual desire. That is, as the reduction of humans to the level of objects. We tend to view humans in the same way we view sports cars, as something beautiful, aesthetically beautiful, and something that I need to possess to drive for myself, as an object to be used for my ends. And Jesus teaches that sexual desire is so much more profound, is so much more robust, is so much more life-giving and comprehensive than that. And so we, as a community, want to move together towards that sort of transformative understanding of human sexuality. And in order to do that, we've got to listen to the words of Jesus. So turn with me in a Bible, if you have one, uh, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verses 27 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, come up to me after service. I'd love to get you one. We'll get you one for free. We want to make sure that you have the ability uh, to read uh, your Bible, both on Sundays and with us throughout the week. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some strong words from Jesus here, right? We're talking about self-mutilation. We're talking about sex. We're talking about hell. All in three, four verses here. This is not your Sunday school clean-cut sort of Jesus. These are powerful words that he's bringing. And I think because of the power of the words, it's worth taking some time to address what this text is and what it isn't. 
uh, because I know it's been weaponized in a variety of ways, both within Christian circles and outside of Christian circles. And we want to avoid that sort of weaponization. So this passage, it comes to us in the midst of, of a huge sermon that Jesus gives called the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon is all about what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is a sermon about Christian living, which means, well, for Christians, these are commands. This is how life ought to look. And I know many of us in this room would call ourselves Christians, devoted followers of Jesus who know we're broken people who need to be transformed by the love and grace of a Savior. But I also know that there's some of us in this room and maybe watching online who well, maybe wouldn't call themselves Christians. Maybe would find themselves in this limbo phase. Like, I, I like Jesus, but I'm not sure about giving my life to him. And this passage speaks to those people in unique ways where they are. So if you're a Christian in this room, these words are commands to you about what it means to be a Jesus follower. If you're a non-Christian in this room, these words are an invitation to you to a healthier understanding of sexuality. They're an invitation to you to get rid of the sports car sexuality that our world says is how we ought to live and live in a much more transformative understanding of sex. And I want to make sure that that comes across. If, if you're someone who's trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, this is an invitation to you. And I would say this is an invitation to something so robust you won't want to resist it. But you have the option too if you want. That's what an invitation looks like. So Christians, this is a command. Non-Christians, this is an invitation to you. And that invitation fully is what it means to be human. We believe as Christians that Jesus was the perfect representation of what it means to be human. And so in following him, in obeying his teachings, we believe that we become more fully what we were designed to be. We want to be more human. And we can do that by understanding our human sexuality well. And that brings us to verse 27, where Jesus actually quotes uh, some words from the Old Testament. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, when we hear you shall not, I think it's important for us to understand that under every you shall not is a, an implicit you shall. Whenever we're being told to restrict our lives in some way, we're being told that because there's a you shall underneath it, something more life-giving that the law is trying to bring. I've got a couple examples that I actually want to put up here for you guys. When your parents, as a kid, told you, you shall not punch your brother, right? what they're really saying is you shall care for the well-being of your brother. You shall love your brother. You shall not drive recklessly is a command to say you shall care for the well-being of your fellow drivers. There's a you shall underneath every you shall not. And this is an important thing to remember here. Jesus isn't just advocating for behavior modification. He's not just advocating for you to check off all the things that you didn't do. This isn't a game of never have I ever. That's not what the Christian life is about. This is a game of, uh, of well, it's not a game, it's a, it's a life of stepping into a transformed understanding of what it means to be human. And I think that's essential for us, especially those of us who've been raised in Christian circles, because oftentimes we start our conversations about sexuality with the words you shall not. And we make sexuality this forbidden fruit, something out there that I can't have. And then I get married, and all of a sudden it's a green light, right? And it's jarring for many of us when we don't have that you shall to inform our sexuality. I know marriages, I know relationships that have been hurt and sometimes fallen apart because they thought that sex was this terrible thing, and all of a sudden they're able to do it, and they don't know what to do. They don't know how it works. They don't know the vulnerability that's included in it. And that's not what Jesus is advocating for here. He's advocating for a you shall 
underneath it. And so in order to understand what the Bible says about sexuality, we actually got to start back at the beginning. That's exactly what Jesus does. In Matthew chapter 19, he's pressed by a few folks, uh, asked, well, what does sexuality look like? What does marriage look like? And he says, you've got to return back to Genesis 1 and 2. And in that passage, God creates the entire cosmos, and he builds it so that it might live in harmony with itself. That's the Hebrew state of shalom where all things are made with distinct purposes. And when they live in those purposes, it creates harmony, love, and community amongst all of creation. And so when humanity comes along, sexuality becomes a part of that shalom. God makes man, he makes woman, he makes them both in his image, and they serve as mutual partners together to steward the cosmos that God has given them. And that stewardship is wide-ranging. God says, hey, take care of the things that I've given you. Take care of the earth. Cultivate a healthy ecology. And then use the resources that I've given you to continue to bring flourishing and life to the world. And part of that flourishing and life that we get charged with is a command to be fruitful and multiply. You're probably able to connect the dots. There's one way that humans multiply. They have sex. Yeah. God's initial command of the man and the woman is a glorious stamp of approval on sex. More than this, when the man sees the woman for the first time, he sings a song of praise about how ravishing she is, about how beautiful their intimacy and vulnerability together is. That's the harmonious shalom of God's original creation. It involved a naked man and a naked woman seeing each other and knowing each other deeply and learning what it means to be completely vulnerable and trusting one another. And so we learn sex is a good thing and attraction is a good thing. Those aren't bad things, according to scripture. And the text goes on to say that both the man and woman, they were naked and unashamed, which implies that sex runs deeper than just our bodies. Sex involves our souls. Sexual attraction involves our souls. Christians don't believe that we're souls trapped in a body or that we're bodies without a soul. They, we believe that we're both. We're meshed together. And so sexual attraction and sexual desire, well, it's an expression of that uh, body and soul combination. A naked body means a naked soul in front of another person, to be fully known and fully vulnerable, vulnerable to them. And that's why Christian, Christians affirm sex inside marriage as essential, because we believe that a complete commitment to the other person is involved, a lifelong devotion of self-giving love. And we all know the effects of when that type of vulnerability is broken, right? We all know friends or family members or ourselves who've been through divorces, who've been through breakups, who have shared vulnerability with someone else only to have it severed because well, they weren't committed to us for life. And so sex within marriage, it's not a prudish thing that Christians do. It's a protection of the intimacy and vulnerability that exists between two people. And so if you hear the culture ever telling you that the Christian understanding of sex is prude, well, read the Bible with them. Because the Bible says something completely different. And if Genesis 1 and 2 isn't enough, go ahead and skip forward to Proverbs 5. In Proverbs 5, 19, there's a father advising his son how to live. He tells his son, hey, be devoted to your wife. And he says these words, may her breasts satisfy you at all times. May you be intoxicated always by her love. No sidestepping that one, friends. <laughs> Sexual attraction is a good thing. The Bible is not prude. There's an entire book of the Old Testament. It's called the Song of Songs. 
and it is some spicy love poetry about a newly married man and woman. There's a whole book. The Bible doesn't try to reduce sex. It actually provides a deeper and wider view than anything else we have in our world. It celebrates sex without creating a culture that uses others for our benefit. And it brings together the entirety of our beings. It brings together our bodies and our souls. And so when the Bible and Jesus in this passage mention, you shall not, we also need to hear, you shall. You shall have sex as a self-giving intimacy to one another in the binding commitment of marriage as devoted partners for the sake of mutual flourishing, for the sake of shalom. We don't need to know just what we aren't to do. We need to know what we are to do. And so that's the foundation that Jesus is building on here. Now, the reality is Jesus is bringing up some things that we aren't supposed to do. He's bringing up some things that will maybe corrupt that initial design, that original shalom idea of flourishing. And so that's what this passage is talking mostly about. In verse 28, after quoting that command from the Old Testament, Jesus turns us immediately inward. He says, it's great not to sleep with someone else. It's great not to commit adultery, but there's something deeper involved here. Remember, you're not just a body, you're a soul. And so avoiding, with sleeping, avoiding sleeping with someone doesn't necessarily mean your desires inside are in line with the idea of, of the cosmos flourishing. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are in on self-giving love with someone else. A life in the kingdom, a life of following Jesus, is a life that is transformed on the outside and on the inside. And sexuality is no different. Jesus is telling us that your inner life matters when it comes to sex. It's not just about your outer life. So what parts of our inner life need to change, right? What are the things that have been corrupted or skewed a little bit? And there's two L words that Jesus gives us in this passage that I want to explore. The first of these L words is the word lust. And oftentimes, when we think of the word lust, we simply conflate it with attraction or desire. We say that they're one and the same. And so that creates sometimes a culture of shame in the church when someone's attracted to someone else. It says, oh, I'm attracted to this person. I can't, well, think they're attractive. I can't call them beautiful. I have to kind of turn my eyes from attraction. The Bible is not against attraction. Remember the foundation that Jesus is building on. The word used here by Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean attraction. It means what you do with that attraction. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament Ten Commandments as covet. It's about uh, wanting to, to take something, to possess something purely for my benefit. To covet, and in this case, to lust, as Jesus is using it, is to reduce a part of God's good creation by viewing it simply as a means to my end. So I've got a, a picture, hopefully, that, that helps you guys understand this. Pretend with me that you're getting home from work, and you just ate lunch maybe five, six hours ago, so you're starting to get a little hungry. You open your car door, and immediately upon stepping out of your car door, your nostrils are filled with a delightful scent of barbecue. You look around, you're like, where is this coming from? And your neighbor, he's got steak, he's got burgers, he's got hot dogs. If you're not a meat person, he's got corn and veggies. <laughs> Salt and pepper and butter. Your mouth is involuntarily watering, right? Synapses in your brain are firing, you're ready to eat. That desire is not a bad thing. Hunger is a good thing. But what you do with that desire is important, right? For instance, we would say it's wrong for you to walk up to your neighbor, say, how's it going? punch him in the face, and steal his barbecue. That's a wrong thing to do, right? 
because that would reduce the barbecue to something to be used purely for my benefit, and that would reduce my neighbor to something to be used for my benefit. And if we say it's wrong to do that with barbecue, why don't we say it's wrong to do it with humans? Jesus is telling us in this passage not to view other people as things that exist, as products that exist for my benefit alone. And so when he uses that word to describe sexual appetites, he's telling us that sex is not a consumer good. It's not a product or experience that exists purely for my pleasure. And when we make sex a consumer good, we take that comprehensive soul, body, vulnerability, and unity that sex was designed to have, and we smash it with the hammer of our own self-indulgence. We reduce the person whom we're supposed to give ourselves fully to and instead take them and use them for our pleasure. That's why Jesus' command in this passage that sounds so countercultural. It's because it is. Our entire society is built on the ethos of consumerism. American culture views each and every person as primarily a consumer to be satiated. That's why you have customized ads on every social media, social media account you have that can predict, based on your search history and your conversations, what you want before you want it. It's because they view you as a consumer and they need to be ahead of the consumers. That's why we have things called convenience stores. And that's why convenience stores want to be open 24-7 if possible. That's why smartphones and apps exist. They're designed to keep pulling you in, to keep you consuming things. We live in a world that thinks the more things I can get for myself, the better I'll be. There's a theologian, his name is Walter Brueggemann. He talks about this in one of his books, and I think he puts it pretty concisely and profoundly. He says, the culture flows from the assumption that the accumulation of commodities will make us safe and happy. And that sort of consumerism has started to define the way in which we view sex. So we develop an app that's worth billions of dollars that encourages us to view our fellow men and fellow women as objects that we can swipe right or swipe left based on how much they please us. We sell our fast food in our cars with images of bikini-clad women. We make movies that encourage the usage of other people for our pleasure. They made three Fifty Shades of Grey movies, and they were blockbusters. We create free and instant access to images and videos catered precisely to our desires. Hookup culture and pornography are exactly the sort of things that Jesus say corrupt our sexuality as human beings because they take image-bearing partners in shalom and they reduce them to be objects that are coveted. That sort of consumeristic sexuality, it's the norm in our culture. So that's what Jesus is saying with that first L word, lust. He's talking about using other people. He's not simply talking about attraction. He's talking about coveting. There's a second L word in the passage. You might have noticed it. It's the word look. And this is actually the action that we take with the intent of that coveting. That's the action we take with that intent to lust. And we also have a little bit of trouble with this word in English because the word look can mean a few different things. It can mean a passing glance. It can mean a, a diligent stare. It can mean a difference in perspective, that I look at something different than how you look at it. And the usage in this passage, it refers to this idea of a willful stare, a prolonged gazing with that intent to possess, with that intent to use the other person for my benefit. So once again, Jesus, he's not shaming physical attraction 
here. He's telling us what we are to do with that attraction or not do in this situation. He's not telling you that if you see someone beautiful, that's automatically a bad thing. What he is telling you is if you take that beautiful person and say, I'm going to use them for my benefit. Martin Luther uh, puts it, I think, pretty humorously in this way. He says, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair and biting my nose off. I can't keep a beautiful or attractive person from walking by me. What I can keep myself from doing is using their body as something well, for my pleasure alone. Using them in my mind and my heart for my benefit. And here's the reality. We all know what Jesus means here with the idea of looks, right? Looking at someone. We know exactly what it means to look with lust, to hold an image of someone else in our head and use that image uh, for our pleasure. We know it so well that we've memed it. You guys know this meme? The cheating boyfriend meme? There's some great ones online if you want to go check it out. Some really funny stuff. Uh, but I'm going to leave this up here because I actually want to look at how this meme perfectly illustrates the disruption of shalom for every person in this image. So first, let's take a look at, uh, at the girlfriend uh, or, or wife or, or significant other here. She's clearly hurt and offended by what this man is doing, right? He is taking an image, he's using it in his head, he's coveting, and she is not a fan, right? He is offending his significant other very clearly. She's hurt. But it also harms the woman walking away here in the pink. See, she has no idea that her body is being used by someone else or how her body is being used by someone else in the mind of this man. She has no clue. And so it harms her because it reduces her down in a way that she doesn't even realize is happening. And it also harms the man because he's robbing himself of that deep and vulnerable intimacy that a non-consumeristic relationship can bring. He's trading that holistic, shalom sort of life for fleeting and momentary self-pleasure. And in doing so, he's disrupting the harmony of the entire created order. And so the man's actions, we focus on his eyes and maybe the girlfriend, it affects every part of this image. And so once again, we find that Jesus' words are radically countercultural. We live in a world that celebrates the maxim, well, it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. Right? Our culture tells us that. It's okay to look as long as you don't touch. It's okay to objectify another human and keep it in your head and heart as long as you don't act on it. And you want to know what that look-don't-touch philosophy has produced for us? A $17 billion adult film industry in the U.S. alone. When we believe that willful staring at images on a screen for our own pleasure is completely harmless, it leads us to send 2.5 billion emails every day with sexually explicit material in them. Every second that goes by in the United States, there are more than 28,000 people perusing explicit images online. Every second. And if that isn't enough evidence for you, if that just proliferation, proliferation, man, if that proliferation of sexual desire isn't enough to think, oh man, that needs to change, science is proving to us how devastating it is. Science is revealing now that pornography and other sexually explicit images have devastating effects on us and on our society. In other words, the empirical data is showing us what Jesus warned us about thousands of years ago. We're just finding out about it with the science now. 
Jesus was exposing a monstrosity to us that we now say, ah, oh, that's normal. That's fine in our culture. And there are three main ways that uh, porn, pornography, and explicit images in general will affect us as humans. The first way they affect us is through our brain chemistry. There's a, a multitude of studies out there, and I can get you some links if you're interested in learning more. There's a multitude of studies that have concluded that porn watching increases anxiety, depression, and body image issues for both men and women. We're in a mental health crisis in the United States, and pornography is exacerbating that crisis. But it doesn't just affect our own brains. It also affects our relationships. See, research has shown that looking at explicit images on a screen creates new neural pathways in your brain so that normal relational pleasures no longer feel as pleasurable. It destroys relationships to the point where some people can no longer feel with their significant other. And there's a really glaring and, and sad example of this uh, in our culture. Pretty, pretty obvious example. You guys heard of Hugh Hefner? He was, uh, he was the CEO. He, he passed away a few years ago. He was the CEO of uh, the Playboy uh, empire. And the idea of Playboy was basically the, the usage of images. He, he made this sort of thing common in our culture. It was the usage of images of people for the pleasure of an individual. And he lived in a mansion. He surrounded himself with attractive people all the time. And he had access to use them in well, basically whatever way they and he would uh, allow. And most people held up Hugh Hefner to be this great example of what the freedom of sexuality should look like. That you are free to pursue your desires as you feel led. Hugh Hefner, more power to you. That tended to be what our culture said. And we said that by buying his magazines. We said that by funding the stuff that he gave us. And there were some memoirs that came out just a couple years ago of women who lived with Hugh. And these women, across the board, talked about how, especially in the latter half of his life, Hugh was no longer able to be intimate, really relationally intimate with any woman. How his intimacy had to be sparked and started not by uh, an actual human being, but by an image on a screen. And those images got more and more extreme and corrupt as he went along in his life. Because he had viewed other people primarily as objects to be used for my benefit, it made him completely unable to feel anything with a real human the soul of Hugh Hefner became calloused. You guys know when you have a callus on your foot or on your hand, right? You try to feel something and you can't quite feel it, right? It feels like it's maybe my skin's touching it, but it's not quite there. That's what happens to our souls when we reduce our fellow humans to things to be used for our benefit. So sex, it, it destroys our brain chemistry, it destroys our relationships, and it also destroys our society. Increased porn usage is directly linked to sex abuse, to sex trafficking, and negative views of women all across the world. And so when Jesus says this command here, you notice he directs it to men, specifically. He's not assuming that women don't have attraction to other people, that women don't struggle with coveting. He's assuming that throughout most of human history, there's been one gender that has tended to dominate the other gender with this sort of covetous sexuality. That's men have tended to dominate women. So this text is a way to protect women to give them a safe space in the kingdom of God where they're not just bodies to be used for the pleasure of a man. There's a reason they call it the oldest profession because men have dominated this sort of thing for a long time. And Jesus is telling us a profoundly feminist message here. 
a profound message of protection and safety for women. And so we learn that Jesus and science tell us that our inner lives actually matter when it comes to sex. And if you're in this room right now, and this heavy topic is weighing on you, and you're maybe starting to realize your inner life might need to change, some part, parts of your inner life might need to change, or the ways in which you've been pursuing your sexual attraction and desire might uh, need to be altered a bit. We're actually starting a couple groups here at the Spring Midtown. And these groups are going to be designed for us to walk together as a community towards that healthier understanding of a shalom view of sexuality. And so uh, there's two groups, one for men, one for women, if you're interested. I'm going to leave these emails up for a second. If you want to write them down, great. This is an anonymous thing. So keep this email in your mind. If you're able to remember it, write it down if it helps. Uh, the first email for men, you can email caleb.springpeople at gmail.com. For women, you can email jackiegparks at gmail.com. We want to be the sort of community in which a healthy understanding of our sexual desires allows us all to flourish, allows us all to be safe, allows us all to be protected, as God had designed it for us at the start of things. So once again, caleb.springpeople at gmail.com. Shoot him an email. It'll be anonymous other than him reading it. Uh, and then finally, for women, email jackiegparks at gmail.com if this is something you're uh, interested in being a part of. So those are the two L words that Jesus gives us about how our sexuality has been corrupted from that original ideal, right? So what are we supposed to do? Actually, Jesus is pretty clear about it. He says, hey, gouge out your eyes, cut off your hand, right? Cool. So why aren't Christians walking around with one eye and one hand? Because Jesus didn't mean it, literally. He's using a hyperbolic, exaggerating method of communication to talk about how urgent this is here. That's something rabbis in the ancient world did often. He doesn't literally mean for us to cut off our limbs and gouge out our eyes. Remember, he just finished talking about how this is a heart issue. So cutting off body parts doesn't help. And even if he wanted us to cut off a body part, there might be some others he could tell us to cut off first. And I can leave it at that. Like, if, if that's really what he wanted, Jesus is telling us that if, if we leave this sort of life of coveting other people for our benefit, if we leave that untreated, it will reap devastating effects on us, on our relationships, and on the world. F. Dale Bruner, a commentator on Matthew, puts it really succinctly and profoundly. He says, desperate cuts require desperate cures. So this should make us ask, what is your eye? What's your hand? Maybe it's a cell phone or a computer. Maybe it's a TV show or a movie. Maybe it's a gym you go to. Maybe it's a relationship you're in. Whatever is causing you to misstep, whatever is keeping you from the life of vulnerability and transformative understanding of other humanity that God has designed for you, get rid of it. Cut yourself off from it. Restrict access to it. That's why Jesus talks so seriously about it. It is an urgent matter for us. And as for the hell that Jesus mentions here, we actually don't need to look very far to see what the hell of coveting sexually looks like in our world. I think most of us know what hellish uh, sexuality looks like. It looks like human trafficking. It looks like child pornography. It looks like Hugh Hefner unable to find fulfillment in anything anymore. That looks like hell. 
Hell is the destruction of intimacy and honesty in relationships. It's the abuse of power to use other humans as a means to my end. The consequences are right in front of us, all around us, all the time. Friends, it is so much better to get rid of your cell phone, to downgrade to a dumb phone, to push your computer aside, to put blocks on things if you need to. It is so, so much better to change your gym membership, if that's the thing, to talk about it a little bit more in your relationship. It's so much better to do those things than than to continue to perpetuate objectification and abuse in our world. It is so much better to cut yourself off from those things. And so Jesus is telling us with great urgency that we can't be Christian atheists. We can't be the sort of people who say we desire a life of true, vulnerable intimacy and then keep up habits that keep undermining it. Instead, we need to be people who commit to telling on ourselves in the midst of safe and gracious and loving community. We need to be the people who, when drawn to look and lust after one another, replace those thoughts with prayers for one another, with prayers that God might bless the body and the soul of that other person. We need to be people who advocate for the objectified, for the vulnerable, for the oppressed in our world. We need to be people who forgive one another and who seek to change. And you guys, there's a reason that I'm serious about this. There's a reason that I'm intense about this. It's largely because Jesus is, but I also see the effects all around us. And hear these words. Jesus is not saying these things to condemn you and turn the other way. Jesus has not done that. If he'd done that, we wouldn't be reading the words. Jesus is right here, and he's pleading with you. He's pleading with you to turn to him for forgiveness, pleading with you to follow this way of transformed living. He's moving towards you here. And when we turn to him, he's faithful to forgive us always. He always forgives because he wants to free every single person in this room and every single person outside this room into a transformed view of their bodies and their souls. He wants to see dry deserts of shame turn into rushing rivers of self-giving life. He wants to see a world in which complete safety and vulnerability are restored in our intimacy for one another. He's inviting every single one of us into a restoration of what it means to be truly human. That's why we read these words. That's why we follow this Jesus. And so I'm going with him. And you can come with me. All of us can go together. I'll stand next to you. I'll trip with you and help you up as long as you do the same for me. I'll walk alongside you because that's what Jesus has called us to be, followers of him who rely on his forgiveness, who rely on the spirit that's amongst us to empower this sort of transformed living. So let's go together. Let's walk into this new and transformed life. Would you pray with me?